Hi, everyone. Thank you all for listening today. This is Redefine Radio's latest episode. My name is Shreya Joshi, and I'm the Director of Journalism at Redefy, and today I'm here with Katie Jayen. Hi, everyone. I'm Redefy's Executive Director, and today we are going to be addressing the events of this past week, the Atlanta shooting, um, as well as the 97% statistic that has been going around on social media lately, what exactly that means, and the way that violence against women impacts different races differently and the importance of intersectional feminism, especially in a time like this. So I guess we'll just get started with maybe like the facts of the shooting, um, since that has definitely been a very impactful part of our week. Eight people were shot in Atlanta, Georgia by a white man predominantly Asian people shot, um, most of whom, six of the eight, were Asian women. And there is a lot of call to describe this as a hate crime. Right. And I think that at least in the articles that I read about the incident, um, the authorities so far have not identified it as a hate crime. They've more, I think the chief of police in Atlanta referred to it as the suspect or the shooter having a bad day, which obviously is not okay on so, so many levels, just because the fact that six out of the eight women um, who were shot were Asian women, that clearly shows that this is an anti-Asian hate crime. Um, And I think that this just really speaks to the fact that just in general over the past year, we've obviously seen a huge rise in Asian um, hate crimes, um, which, you know, has also been incited by a lot of the language that, like, people in public have been using in terms of referring to the coronavirus as like the China virus. Exactly. I think that this is almost undoubtedly racially motivated. Um, I think also the fact that the shooter chose like predominantly Asian locations. He chose massage parlors run by Asian people and then cited, I believe, his sexual temptation um, as a reasoning for having done this, that he was getting rid of his temptation, which first of all, is just incredibly disgusting. And then also addresses this idea of the hypersexualization of Asian women, because we have these massage parlors, a lot of people associate them with forms of sex work. um, And whether or not that was the case here really shouldn't matter, given that that doesn't mean that they deserve to die by any means. And again, all goes to this idea that Asian women are there for white men's sexual pleasure, which is absolutely disgusting and I think a huge motivator of what happened here. Um, And so, yeah, like some of the victims, families um, have started GoFundMes and I think that there has been like organizing around this event, which has been super important. But again, the event to have taken place in the first place, is just, it suggests a lot about our society from the racism against Asian Americans, especially this year, to this idea of the hypersexualized Asian woman, which we have been seeing for centuries um, since colonization. So yeah, I thought all of that shows, I guess, just this idea of violence against women impacts a lot of different groups of women in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think Katie kind of hit it right on the head. Um, A lot of people have been bringing up the PAGE Act, 
which I believe was passed in the early 1870s. But basically, um, that act, I think it systematically excluded Chinese women specifically from entering the United States on the basis or on the assumption that they were prostitutes. And I think the implications of that legislation um, are really kind of seen in the events that happened like earlier this week, especially. Um, and I'm really glad that this is, you know, starting to receive a lot of attention right now, because I think when most people think about like anti-Asian uh, legislation that has been passed in the past, um, we kind of like refer back to like the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was obviously like a really, really big thing. But the thing is, the Exclusion Act only came after the Page Act, because the Exclusion Act kind of made an additional amendment in terms of like um, excluding Chinese men from entering the United States. Um, but I think the fact that the Page Act, which isn't really as well known, kind of just shows how this hypersexualization of Asian women, it's not really talked about or discussed. Um, and obviously, like this event, even though it, it was horrible and it's awful that these are the circumstances in which like this conversation has kind of started. But um, that's just the way it is. And I think we also did see that as well. in George Floyd, after his death, there was a lot of conversation about Black Lives Matter. So I think we're kind of seeing a really similar trend here. Yeah, no, I totally agree. There's these hashtags protect Asian lives, which I think are super important. Of course, that's not all we should be doing, but spreading awareness has definitely become a main theme, not only this past week, but also, like you said, this past year with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I guess that is another topic of conversation, given that there have been a lot of comparisons of what's going on right now to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that there's a few different issues in those comparisons. Um, like for one, I think the fact that we're having these racial movements, like you said, these movements for equity um, and for liberation are so, so important. And I don't think that either should negate the other, but you are seeing some of this almost like transactional ideas like, oh, like why, are, why aren't black people engaging with like the protect Asian lives movement? Why didn't Asian people, you know, like, fight harder for the Black Lives Matter movement if they now want allyship. Like this idea that activism is transactional and you, you know, help other groups if you want to help yourself, which really doesn't make sense. We should be protecting, in my opinion, all lives, no matter what. That, wow, sounded a little bit too much like an all lives matter. <laughs> Not what I mean. Um, we should be protecting racially marginalized groups of people um, and I think that this kind of division is definitely something that benefits white people more than anyone else given that by keeping racial minorities apart they're stopping a united front against white supremacy especially when I've seen a lot of people saying that you know at the root cause of this is white people and I'm not being like oh, it's not just all white people generally but there is this idea that, you know, these hate crimes are going to keep happening unless we acknowledge our white privilege and unless, you know, we actively work to change that. And they're not just going to be happening against Black people. The Black people are very disenfranchised and very oppressed in our society, but they're also going to be happening against Asian people for completely different reasons. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with everything that you said. And I also think that this idea of like recognizing your own privilege is so, so important, especially like that's the first step towards allyship. I think just recognizing the privileges that you have that like other marginalized communities necessarily don't like 
Um, I was actually talking to my dad the other day. Um, and you know, these like when we see in the headlines, we see like rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans. But the thing is, like Asia is such a big continent and it lumps together so many different ethnicities. Um, like I'm Asian, but I'm actually Indian American. Um, and obviously, like we haven't really been seeing a rise in hate crimes against Indian Americans. We've mostly been seeing a rise in hate crimes against Chinese Americans. So in a way, like I guess I'm I kind of recognize my privilege in the sense that, like, you know, I'm not a Chinese American. Like I'll never have to worry about like something like this specifically happening to me because of the recent surge and like of anti like Asian violence due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so I really think that even like within like technically like I'm Asian, but even within our community, like we still have to recognize our own privileges and, you know, um, just like do everything that we can to support those who are really hurting right now. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think just this idea of if you're benefiting from it, you still have a responsibility to change it, whether or not you are, you know, sexualizing East Asian women, or you're, you know, have a lot of Asian friends, and you know, like, you're like the biggest ally, you still need to be responsible for your privilege, in my opinion. And that means like consistently going out there and doing the necessary work, whether that's like an internal evaluation of how you're benefiting from white supremacy. Um, and I'm saying you, but I also like very much mean I, I am half Indian and half white. And so I benefit a ton from white supremacy. And so, yeah, I guess how we are benefiting from this and how we can use our privilege to make change and use our voices, which, you know, are a lot more represented in the media and in government to make a change. And I think that what you said about not clumping in Asian Americans as one group, definitely something I'm guilty of, um, is really important just given that, I mean, this idea of individuality that can only apply to white people. Like for example, saying like European Americans, that's not really a phrase here, but like we have like, you know, like people from England or Germany or Ireland or whatever. And that's a very different situation than just like Asian Americans generally. And so I guess this idea of like individuality needing to apply to other cultures as well um, is another thing that I think we could probably benefit from more representation in the media, especially of East Asian and South Asian and Southeast Asian um, representation. But I think similarly, feminism has been rising a lot lately. There's this concept of the 97%. And I think now we can get into that a little bit. So basically that refers to the percent of women in the UK, it was a specifically UK study, I believe, that have been sexually harassed. Now, we um, redefine based mostly in America, but I think it very obviously applies to women across the globe, um, if not that same number, something close to it. And honestly, like, it's a really scary number to think about. Like, it's not necessarily just rape and sexual assault, which are obviously absolutely terrifying and something that so many women have to deal with. And like, I'm not like equating like, catcalling to sexual assault but just the fact that like this 
is so deeply embedded in our society that maybe not all men, which is something that a lot of people have been saying lately, but almost all women face this is absolutely atrocious and something that I think we are also coming to terms with right now. And the way that that applies to different races is also interesting. I think white women, myself included, have a lot of privilege when it comes to this. There isn't that, I guess, like, angry black woman archetype or the delicate hypersexualized asian um woman archetype when it comes and how addressing these problems between races differently given that it's different problems require different solutions is super important yeah no definitely agree with everything that you just said in terms especially like in terms of like the different archetypes i guess that surround different races and then just like in terms of the 97 percent statistic itself like First of all, like, wow, that's terrifying. And then second of all, like, just personally, I've seen so many people like on TikTok, on social media, like even within my own friend circle who are like realizing that they aren't necessarily part of the 3% just because sexual harassment amongst women is so incredibly normalized. Like so many people don't even consider like catcalling or like being inappropriately touched, like without consent, like sexual harassment, even though that's literally what it is. So I just think that like that 97% statistic, like it's kind of taken over all of our social medias. And like, I think you mentioned Katie, a lot of people are coming out and saying like, not all men like are a part of the people who sexually harass 97% of women. But like, I definitely do think that it is all men's responsibility to like kind of reevaluate like their own behavior in the past and like make sure um you know just make sure that like they're reflecting on their own like gender-based privilege as well especially in this context or people who aren't misogyny affected should be responsible for fighting against the misogyny within our society i guess that it's so systemic and so deeply ingrained that a lot of women don't realize it and so even when you're like not all men if you think about like a lot of the actions that are normalized and that a lot of men take without realizing how it impacts women and I'm saying men and women I think I probably should be saying misogyny affected and non-misogyny affected people given that you know trans people exist and so do non-binary people if you think about that then it is I think a lot of men and that's a really difficult thing to handle um and to think about for both misogyny affected and non-misogyny affected people because I mean it's hard to think like you might have done some of these things um catcalling, asking for nudes repeatedly, that counts as sexual harassment. And the fact that there's so many little parts of our behavior that we need to change is definitely an idea that I think is just starting to resonate with some people. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think the hardest part of like recognizing your own privilege is the fact that like you first have to come to not like, I mean, I guess self-acceptance with the fact that like you have probably indulged in some behaviors in which you've like benefited from that privilege. Like just as, as an example, um, I read this Redefy article actually about how like we're all a little bit racist. You know, we all kind of have this like internalized bias that um, makes us a little bit wary of like, you know, people of certain skin colors and races. And obviously like, I think what makes us 
what uh what we have to do is just kind of ref like reevaluate our own privilege and you know it's not even just a one time thing like it's something that you have to do every single day you have to like think back to yourself like oh like um did i benefit from my privilege in any way today and if so like what can i do to make myself a better ally to do to those who don't have that privilege so i think like especially when thinking about this kind of stuff you just kind of have to remember that like it's not a one-time every day or one-time thing. It's more something that like, it's like a process. You have to do it every single day in order to actually like make a difference within yourself and like be an ally to a marginalized community. That reminds me of like something that I heard consistently and you need to be constantly addressing your privilege. And I think that that goes for both non-misogyny impacted people as well as people who benefit from racial <laughs> oppression and just looking into ways that, you know, people who benefit from white supremacy and people who benefit from like systems of the patriarchy can help, not just on an individual level, that's obviously very important and an incredible first step, but also on like a systemic level, like the way that like these individual actions manifest themselves on a greater scale or how to fight like these forms of oppression. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I also think that like in that kind of process, you also have to make sure to listen to the people who are like impacted and hurting the most. I mean, just as an example, like with everything that we've seen in the past week, so many women have come forward with their own stories of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And I just like, I can't even imagine how disheartening it would be to like, you know, post something like that on social media or on TikTok or something, and then just see the comment section filled with like, not all men do that, or like not all men are guilty of this. It's, um, basically equivalent to like, you know, a black person sharing their stories of like oppression or like the racism that they faced and um, opening up to a comment section filled with like all lives matter or like blue lives matter or something like that. So I definitely think that like when you're having these conversations, like making sure that like you're not talking over and instead you're amplifying and actually listening to the people who are impacted by these issues. Um, that's also something that you should really consider. For these issues impact different races so differently it's important to see them from different perspectives listen to the victims both you know racially as well as gender-based um for example going back to this idea of like systemic flaws violence against like black and indigenous women is off the charts it's a lot worse than violence against white women and it's not a competition by any means but it's all a part of these systemic flaws, right? Where we don't have enough people looking for murdered and missing indigenous women and fighting for them. We don't have enough people, you know, caring about the murders of black women. Um, and I think that that's a place where intersectional allyship is really, really necessary because these issues affect us all differently. Um, and it, they do affect some of us more than others but yeah i think that that i guess kind of brings us to like what we wanted to address and redefine this month with our monthly theme of intersectional feminism and this idea that when you're fighting for a cause any cause it could be the environment it could be sexism it could be racial equity it's important to look at how these issues affect different people in different ways and how you know one a one fits all solution maybe isn't the best way to go ever given that for example like environmental um justice impacts 
black and low income people a lot more than it does like middle upper class white people. And so that's like a place where you need to look for unique solutions um, or, you know, complete systemic change if you actually want to change things for everyone and not just the people who are talking the loudest. And so I think that the same thing goes here. We need solutions for... Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that, Katie. And like, I also think that when you're thinking about all of these different conversations that are currently happening right now, um, I just, I saw this post or maybe it was an article, I don't really remember, but it was like, Um, written from the perspective of an Asian American woman. And she said, like, at this point, like, we don't need solidarity, we need action, right? So I think that we've gotten to the point that where, you know, simple conversations, you know, as like, meaningful and impactful as they do have like the potential to be at this point, like, it's really important that we all come together, you know, and do what, like, whatever little that we can, you know, as teenage, or not whatever little, whatever that we can to, um, you know, support these communities and affect change on a systematic systemic level. And I think, you know, whether that's like, you know, calling your representatives to like, you know, um, advocate for a certain piece of legislation or um, phone banking or text banking or whatever means of advocacy, just like actually doing something versus just talking about it, like not to underemphasize that in any facet at all. But I just think that the importance of action, especially, you know, with everything that's happening and just the rise in like hate crimes, just as one example, um, it just kind of really points to like, like how much we really, really need um, systemic change at this point. I totally agree. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I think that this conversation was really good. I learned a lot. I didn't know about, um, the PAGE Act, and so I think that, yeah, there's a lot more educating that I personally need to do, and that, a lot more advocacy, like you said, that everyone needs to do across the board. So we talked a lot about violence against women and sexual assault in this episode, but if you or anyone you know has encountered forms of sexual assault, then the helpline for that is 1-800-656-4673. Please stay safe. listening.